You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Today I'm speaking with Mikhail Seiding. He's an internationally renowned equity portfolio manager who managed the long-short equity hedge fund Futurus from 2000 to 2015, where he was one of three senior partners and where he served as the portfolio manager and managing director. The fund Futurus received numerous awards, including several Best Directional Hedge Fund over the 10 years awards, and not least of which was the European Long Short Equity Hedge Fund of the Year for 2008, which we all know was a particularly challenging year. It went on to receive the European Hedge Fund of the Decade for the period 2000 through 2009. Since January 2015, Mikhail has been sharing his insights and unique perspectives on technology, investing, weightlifting, economy, happiness, conspicuous consumption, and mindfulness. Um, And you can catch all of this material on his website, which is mikhailsiding.com. And today I'm speaking with Mikhail. Um, a little bit of a background around who you are. I think really it's it's a bit of a, a bit of a tragedy that your name is not as well known as many other um, people in the financial world space. And in large part, that's really just down to the fact that when you were running the fund, you were probably not spending as much time and energy on marketing as many of your contemporaries um, certainly do. That's something I want to touch on a little bit later on is, is kind of market psychology around what attracts people. But if, if you could just kind of quickly kick off with your sort of background from earlier childhood, briefly touch on how it is that you got into the into managing money and, and then we can take it from there. Um, all right. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it short, at least the, the part from my, my childhood and, and up to my professional career. Anyway, uh, I was born in a place called Jukkasjärvi, which is very far north. It's above the polar circle in, in Sweden. Um, as of now, they build a, an ice hotel there every year. So anybody familiar with the ice hotel in Jukkasjärvi would, would know where it is. And um, after that, um, my, my parents moved down to um, um, a smaller, well, um, a, a mid-sized city just in the in the middle of Sweden, you could say. Um, and I got interested in mathematics and computers, um, mostly because I didn't really fit in uh, at school. I, I've got a slight uh, Asperger affliction, so I, I don't really socialize that well. And I kind of hid um, within, within mathematics and, and, and computer and, and coding. Uh, but I, I think that was a, a very good school for me. Uh, it taught me, you know, discipline and, and algebra and, and, and other useful stuff that I uh, that came in handy later. Um, I, I never really tried hard at school. It, it, it was never like an, uh, an ambition for me. Um, I just um, I just wanted to um, uh, be out of sight and, and out of the way in in, in a ways. Um, so I, I just made sure I knew everything and therefore th- the teachers learned that they never had to ask me anything since they knew that I knew. Uh, so, so that was an, an interesting start. Uh, 
Was um, tell me was was puzzles and problem solving something that you enjoyed um, from a younger age? No, not not puzzles uh, in, in in as as um, in in that uh, sort of traditional way. sense. So, right? No, so I, I never kind of I never played with with uh, with with various kinds of puzzles or, or um, things to to solve. Uh, I I just. I liked programming. That was the only kind of puzzle uh, that interested me. Um, anyway, between seventh, no, between ninth grade and um, secondary school, uh, I stumbled upon um, uh, a, a study technique that, that focuses on words you don't understand. So you, you, you just you're supposed to look up every word that's a bit vague to you and make sure you can define it and use it. It seems, seems obvious and, and, and very simple, but I, I think most people just skip over those words and, and, and hope that they'll get the context anyway. But I think that, that single technique just propelled me from a pretty good student to, uh, to the, the, the very top and, and and um, actually, um, the best student over three years in in mathematics and physics in in um, well the, 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 the important part of Sweden. So um, I actually got a, a prize from the king, the king of Sweden, for for that. Um, and I think that prize in itself it kind of told me that I actually do have something, something that's that's interesting that could be used for for something. But before that, I, I I never really considered myself. And what um, age was that? Uh, Eighteen. Right. So uh, the the prize really was for uh, the best secondary school student in mathematics and physics, you could say. Um, and 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 by that time, I was becoming very tired of school and disinterested in in general. And um, um, when when thinking about studying. Further after secondary school, uh, well, firstly, I, I had kind of planned not to to study anything after that. Well, I hadn't really planned at all. I, I I hardly knew that you were supposed to study after secondary school, but some some friend or frenemy told me that well, you you actually can't get a job from here. You you really need to study something else. So you 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 can you can really tell that I was quite a naive young. Young man. Was it was that due to the relative isolation of where you were living, or was it something else? Because, like you mentioned, this almost isolation where you hid in mathematics to a certain extent, and mm, that's yeah. that's I, not. You know, I think if you look at people who are exceptional in fields, what they tend to often end up doing is is they will hide, and and it could be in running in athletics, it could be in kickboxing and it, it you know any any field of activity and they'll often almost hide in in that particular um, field of expertise because it's where they feel most comfortable and then I guess there's a there's a feedback loop which exists in that if you tend to spend an exceptional amount of time on any particular topic you know the law of averages would suggest that you're likely to be better at it than 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 other people that um, don't spend as much time on it. Yes, I, I agree, and I also think that that's really a, um, a good way to to live your life. 
I think people spend way too much time and energy following the news and following the, the general gossip and, and socializing in, in general. If you really want to, uh, to learn something deeply and thoroughly and, and have any practical use for it, then you should just focus and try to um, stay out of, of all the noise. Uh, and, and I think Which, that I just did that naturally, probably because I, I'm not a social guy to start with. So I, I never really thought about this. Something that you inherently had a natural trait towards, whereas I think for the majority of people, human beings are um, we're social creatures. And as such, we tend to validate our um, decision making with other with other human beings and it's one of the things um, which I kind of wanted to get onto a little bit later after you've mentioned a little bit more as to how you actually got into managing money but that concept of I guess it's you know the, in the financial world there's a lot of you know, sort of trend followers and then there's this class of people who tend to consider themselves contrarians and one of the I think it was something that I read about a piece of work that you you put out at some point you you mentioned that you're not a contrarian, but you're an individual. And I think that's a really, really important point around that understanding that you can look at information inputs and be able to analyze them independently without that need for social construct around that and come to some sort of judgment without, so it's not an automatic contrarian or the market or the, you know, the, the zeitgeist is X and therefore I'm going to be Y. It's just, you know, independently looking at information um, and being able to come to some sort of consensus within yourself as to what that may mean. And I think that's, it, it, it's unusual, I think, for the majority of people to be able to do that and to be able to think in that fashion. And I think it's quite a critical point. Um, so I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's dangerous to, to label your, label yourself a contrarian. Um, but I understand why people do it. It's a, it's a way of, of marketing, but mm -hmm. if you label yourself a contrarian, then as soon as you think the same things as other people do or, or come to the same conclusion, then, then you kind of have to second guess yourself because you well, you've already said you're a contrarian and then you maybe start believing yourself that you, you should you should be the opposite of everybody else. And, and that's just not possible. So, um, Do you um, think that th that that labeling of yourself is, is the dangerous? Because this happens in religion. It happens in, in pretty much every sort of field of life of how we go about differentiating ourselves and... and um, defining our identity you know people will say oh Mikhail good to meet you what do you do and and the way that we typically will respond is oh I'm a hedge fund manager oh I'm an electrician oh I'm a dentist I'm a... and so people immediately get this vision as to what exactly that is so it's a labeling and and that happens throughout society across every spectrum and I understand why people do it because it's it's easy and it and it provides context relatively quickly but when it comes to managing money and and to really, I guess, trying to understand markets and psychology, that labeling, um, I would sort of suggest, I guess, is 
is really dangerous because it creates an immediate bias as soon as you you sort of label yourself one thing. Um, it's like it's like using PE ratios. It's like if you if, if, if that's the first thing you look at, or if you mm-hmm. categorize your your investment universe uh, f- from a, a price earnings ratio standpoint, then then you're you're kind of dooming yourself to to uh, assign any kind of value uh, to, to to those ratios, even though they probably are meaningless. At, at least if you only look one or two years out. And I think it's the same thing with labeling anybody a contrarian or a hedge fund manager or a janitor or, or what have you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So um, so what was it that finally got you into actually managing money? So you had this experience of clearly being very gifted at mathematics, automatically, I think, having the, the, the benefit of being socially awkward or um, of being antisocial to a certain extent. So how did that lead down the path um, where you landed up managing money? Okay, so so um, um, by the absolute last semester of secondary school, um, just a few weeks before you're supposed to um, uh, to hand in your applications for um, uh, for college, um, I was thinking, or okay, I, I it seems you're supposed to go to college. So I, I better study something. And, and I thought that I, I mean, I like chemistry, I like explosions. Um, so, and, and I like teaching. Um, so, so why not uh, try studying uh, a short, a short, um, program, um, uh, for, for becoming a, um, a chemist and possibly using that to become a, a teacher in, in chemistry afterward. Um, but right about this time, just as I was starting to think about um, this this um, this college, um, my uh, you, you could call it frenemy. I mean, he he used to be my bully in middle school, but we became friends uh, later on. And and he was talking about this this school called Stockholm School of Economics, which uh, is the the most prestigious school in um, in, in Sweden. You would you would probably study finance or economics or something like that, and right. that's where you, well you saw a lot of rich people being. And um, I had no idea what it was, but but since it had the word economy in it, I thought it just have to be it just have to be really really easy and like like a vacation. So I'm I'm tired <laughs> of school. So so well I could just as well study economics. Um, and um and and it will also be kind of a a small victory against him uh, a belated one but but still some kind of a victory because he really really wanted to to go there but he, he couldn't get in uh, so so well i i applied got in and and started more or less trying to to get expelled right from the get go uh, i dressed funny i uh, well, uh, as soon as there there was a, a chance for for some kind of a uh, a party, uh, I uh, I participated and, and drank heavily and thought that was really really uh, a fun time. Since I hadn't drunk before, I, I turned eighteen and I had well just turned eighteen before I before I started there. So uh, I uh, and and I well I, I won't go into any details, but there are there are still some reverberations high up in in the government so you, from you were some a nightmare you were there. essentially a, a nightmare going in 
um, to this university, which was a prestigious yes. place where the sort of upper echelons of society would send their children. And you had this unknown upstart from background, which clearly didn't have the same uh, or wasn't the same as um, the existing people within that sphere. And um, you proceeded to challenge everything that they were doing. Yes. But after one year, after one year in that environment, I realized that they are not at all wearing suits and ties and and being, uh, well, assholes. Um, So one year later... And was that your expectation? Yes. Right. Uh, So one year later, I, I just made a complete turnaround, bought myself a couple of suits and ties and started wearing a suit and tie to school and, and a back slick every day, every single day, which nobody else was doing. So now I, I took that role that I thought that everybody else would have, and, mm-hmm. and, but they didn't. <laughs> so, so I became that weird guy in, in, in a suit and tie. And, and, and I, I also pimped myself with, with a lot of jewelry, like gold rings and gold necklaces and stuff like that. Uh, uh, What was it that was going through you? Was this, I mean, when I think back to sort of, I guess, my um, late teens, early sort of 20s, you're going through this sort of defining period where you're, to a large extent, you're trying to figure out who you are. Was that just you sort of testing, um, you know, who Mikhail Siding was and, and trying to figure that out internally? Yeah, I was probably just uh, maturing uh, very late. Mm. So th- this was me being 13, 14, 15, but, uh, but uh, uni- in university instead at 18, 19. Right. Um, and realizing that I actually got good grades, even though I, uh, I, I didn't try to, um, in, in, in the final years, I, uh, I really put in an effort to make sure I got the best grades in, in in the end. Um, and, and I did. So I, I actually did, um, finish at the top of my class. Um, all, uh, anything that I, I might have, uh, uh, done a bit poorly on in, in the, in the very beginning that got hid in, inside, uh, um, like they, they, they clumped grades together. So you could never, you can never see that any particular course or anything like that was 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 a little bit worse because the, it, it got hidden in, in the total total grade in, in the end. So I actually finished top of my class, which which was quite unexpected given my my antics in in the first year. <laughs> uh, and and the way I got into finance is that I think it was in 1992 I got hold of the book American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, I read it only for for the gore. And, and I actually read it three times in a row before the girl who had lent it to me demanded it back when, when she heard that I just kept reading it over and over again. <laughs> she, she was probably quite concerned <laughs> and thought she's going to change her address. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and my closest friends at, uh, at school, uh, they read it too. And then one of, uh, one of the guys, he said, well, great. Now we know what, what we're about to yeah. major, major in. So, it, and, and I was like, uh, yeah, uh, what? <laughs> and uh, because I, I still hadn't figured that out and could, had no was, clue what he was he, meaning. He wasn't suggesting mass murder, but um, rather finance. Yeah, finance. So, so we all applied 
and what we all took finance for for our major and um and that's really how i in the end ended up in in um in the finance industry so it was all just luck and coincidence and and, and weird uh, weird chances uh, all through my uh, my, my my school years yeah i mean like i think about friends of mine that are all hedge fund managers myself kind of how i got interested in the space and i don't think i've ever come across anybody that's actually said that a book like american psycho was what sort of was was one of the catalysts towards them being um getting involved <laughs> in, in finance it's you know it's typically um you know benjamin graham book or a um a book about from I don't know, one of Soros's books, or a, you know, it, it's it's something that is very dedicated towards that kind of field um, and quite positive towards it. So um, you took a uh, you certainly took a different path. Uh, yes, um, and well, <laughs> well I, I really can't explain it more than that. Um, you you really have to blame my friend who 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 took. The, the the small parts of finance from American Psycho and, mm. and they concluded that that's what we're going to do and I was just a, a very malleable person who who well more or less did what anybody suggested quite a, quite a passive so, 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 sort of participant on the train just sort of mm. run, you know trains yeah. going to that station and that's you'll just jump on and see what happens mm. Mm. Um, and then, then we're we're at um, 1994 now, and I'm uh, about to uh, to finish school. And um, Sweden was in a deep financial crisis, um, the worst that anybody can remember, at least since since the 70s, if not even worse than in the 70s. We kept yeah, mid 90s. Kept, uh, um, there, there was you know the threat that Sweden would default. Yeah, we had a, a counter on the most uh, central square in Stockholm, which kept counting the the government debt, and it was suggesting that there is no way we can stop this from from just blowing, mm-hmm. blowing the country apart. So in 1991 to 1994, real estate prices plummeted 90 percent. Uh, the government debt skyrocketed. Um, we had huge deficits. Everything was just coming apart. And there were definitely no jobs in finance. Was that um, just quickly to break in? Was that something that you were aware of on a uh, on any sort of scale at the time that no, you were sort of entering into finance and having this sort of contextual framework around the country that you were living in, and the sort of dire finances and, and the repercussions, you know, came out of that. Could come out of such an um no I, I, no I really had I had no idea I, I I kind of never made the connection between what we learned in school and what happened in in the real world I mean I wasn't really following the news in any way I just I just read what we were supposed to read in, in school right. and and the only memory I have of any kind of connection between school and reality was when uh, one of my teachers in finance said that well if you have your money in this and that bank, well, I would take it out today and move it to just any any of the other banks, and and that's what I did. So I, I just went over there after after the class ended and and, and moved my money, um, and um, uh, but I but I still didn't realize that there was a financial crisis, 
And the only reason I, I know about this debt clock and, and have it vividly in, in my mind is because in my, um, when, I, when I got my first work, the debt clock was right outside the window. <laughs> That's fascinating. You were studying finance at the most prestigious Swedish university. You were in the depths, the country was in the depths of a financial crisis. I don't understand how you could kind of not put the two together. You know, was that a willing a, a willingness to not piece it together, or was it? Did you have segregated the information that you were taking in at university from the real world? Like, it's like so where you look to... at it and you sort of you go, um, you know, for example, I've got children, and so you know, just finished doing some homework with them, and we're doing um, uh, geometry and. There's, you know, it's 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 not at all relevant to anything that happens in my son's life, and so the the way that I kind of try and teach it to him is to make it relevant, um, is to um, show him buildings and show him angles and show him, um, you know, how that can be uh, useful. For example, if you were an architect or something like that, and you would have weight ratios that could affect, um, you know. Um, uh, certain structures and and then he sort of looks at it and goes oh okay I can I can see why that might be make sense so now I'll do my homework but it, it, you know from what you're talking about Mike Michael it's you were looking at it purely from the fact that this is just information that's being given to me and I I, I learn it and I you know um, apply what I need to apply in order to get to the results that are required but there wasn't there wasn't um, almost a desire to understand how that would be implemented in, you know, in modern day society or in, in something outside of university. I never realized that I was supposed to, to use this information in the real world. I, as you said, I, I was just trying to get the results I was supposed to in school. And, and I mean, in the beginning, I wasn't even trying that um, since I thought economics was just a joke anyway. Going there was more like well, uh, giving the bird to the world. So um, it, it, I, I can't really understand who I was and, and how I could be so naive and so ignorant of, of everything around me back then, because now I'm more of a like holistic person that takes everything into account. But back then I was just, well, I had tunnel vision, complete tunnel vision. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating to to kind of think it through because you know you and I have spoken before and I've been reading your material for quite some time, and of all of the uh, people that I follow, you've got this. It feel, from my perspective, you have a very deep understanding of what does matter, and how that fits into sort of a contextual framework of the world, which I I find it really really valuable. So it's it's quite fascinating that. You were, I guess, a late bloomer, but certainly bloom you did. And I just think I, I found like the key uh, very late. But when I found it, I, I applied it in the same way that I typically apply anything, just with immense focus. But it, it took quite some time before I realized that the world actually is real and it's a whole world and not just Sweden and not just tech companies, for example. Um, so like in, in, in 1994, in, in the end, I, I, I got this, uh, broker's assistant job at, uh, a very small 
recently started broker firm. Like I usually call it a third third tier firm, which mm-hmm. is probably um, uh, a too high too high a praise for for that company. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, anyway, the, the, the people there were good, and and uh, and um, uh, they were good at what they were they were doing, and they were they were nice people and and i did learn a lot and they they did point me in a couple of good directions so i i um, very quickly i um they they realized that he's not supposed to be a broker's assistant so they they put me on on research instead in in just a couple of months time and and i started researching companies and i i got to take every company that nobody else was was paying attention to so in 1994 we started finally getting uh, a couple of uh, information technology companies being listed uh, again i should say on, on the stockholm stock exchange so i i got to research all of them so this um, was a period where i'm sorry to break in but so this yeah. was a period just like i'm trying to put this into sort of context in my head um sweden was sort of i guess at that point they were sort of coming out of that financial crisis and we were the world was entering this soon to be massive boom in information technology and in in um in IT services service companies and um and the like yes i think netscape was ipo'd in 1995 so that would be just one year after i i started uh, researching companies at, at this place right so and, and in 1995 i think you could say that both sweden and and some other parts of of the world had left the crisis behind them and then it all just got catapulted into the IT age by by the Netscape IPO and and there I was just really in in the middle of it researching IT companies already and being one of quite few people who, who did that and also with a kind of a coding background so I could um, well at least portray myself as understanding uh, what this was all about so yeah because you you would have had obviously the analytical skills to evaluate cash flows and um, balance sheets and income statements and the likes but then you had this this background in um, as you mentioned in coding which is quite an unusual combination it's 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 um it's unusual to find an analyst that has got that background and then of course it's unusual to find um, a coder or a developer that has subsequently you know moved to becoming an analyst mm, yeah yeah uh, so uh, a, a lot of um, a luck, luck again, you would say. I mean, who knew? Who, who could have ever predicted that all these things would come together and uh, right there and, and 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 then and for me? But well, it, it did happen. Um, and after a few years at this place, uh, one of Sweden's largest banks wanted to um, to start their own IT research departments in, in at their broker firm. So they they simply hired me. So. Uh, that took me out of, you know, this third tier uh, firm and and into more of a well first or second tier, depending on, on how you look at it in, in in Sweden, and and put me as head of the IT research department. And this was in 1996. Um, so, uh, and 1996 until the year 2000, that was when the the real boom was, because between 1994 and 1996, it was actually quite hesitant and, and a little bit up and down and there were some remains of the financial crisis and people didn't really trust uh, the bull market but the capital and, um, hadn't started coming in the technologies etc were being um, developed and built um, but i guess it was kind of that wall of worry stage where uh, there yeah, were interesting things exactly. taking place but 
that that big capital shift that you get in in markets hadn't yet eventuated. Yeah. So so I got this, you know, restart as a professional platform with institutional clients, uh, uh, a large bank backing me, uh, all of the things that you really would want to have. And I was also the the head of the IT research departments and between 1996 and, and 2000. So I, I just rode the bull market perfectly. Um, what I didn't do, however, is take a job abroad. I was still too myopic and maybe, well, I don't know how to put it really, but comfortable or, or content. Uh, things were moving fast for me, from my point of perspective. So I didn't really have to think about getting an international career as a, as an analyst or, mm-hmm. and, and I, I didn't, I, I never, well, I, I didn't understand and I wasn't ambitious enough to, to strive for a much higher pay or, or a lucrative career or, or, a, uh, or, or higher stature in any way. And then presumably there wasn't the need to either because, of course, there's two things that tend to move us and one is the carrot and the other is the stick. And things were okay and they were certainly getting better in Sweden and you had this background in coding and um, enjoying the boom. So why would you move? It, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. Uh, I probably could have made, made 10 times as much <laughs> if I had moved to, to London, for example. Sure. I, I think. But um, I didn't know that and uh, I did make enough. Um, so, well, for, for me, everything was great. And actually, by the, by the end of 1999, I was starting to think that this isn't really honest anyway. I mean, I'm supposed to have some kind of buy recommendations at, at least some companies, but I, I really can't warrant it anymore. They, everything is too expensive in my mm-hmm. sector. Um, also I was becoming very tired of, of marketing, of writing previews and reviews of quarterly reports. Um, I was just thinking that everything was starting to become meaningless. So, so, so you I, was just to put it in context, that was sell, you were on the sell side. Yes. Yeah. And, and well, by that time, just by the end of the IT boom, even though you, you didn't know it, um, I was thinking about quitting and, and, uh, uh, not retiring because I realized I didn't have enough money for that. So I haven't, hadn't even started to think about that, but I, I was at least thinking of just moving back to, to that, uh, uh, smaller town, the uh, mid-sized town and just take an ordinary bank job, just be a, well, you know, sit in the, um, like a teller in, yeah. in, uh, uh, working nine to five. I was, I was dreaming about. Uh, getting enough sleep and just working nine to five, not having anything with me home that I had to think about or, or prepare and, and just, well, you know, <laughs> relax. Yeah. Um, and well, I started talking about these things with, with the people around me. Um, and, um, and, and strangely enough, one of my closest colleagues, he suggested that he and I start a venture capitalist fund in 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 tech <laughs> in in the beginning of the year 2000 and and i was 
actually thinking, yeah, yeah, maybe that's that sounds like not a not a bad idea. <laughs> we could run it ourselves, and and well, we can control our own hours, and it seems reasonable to just steal ideas from the U.S. and and apply them in Sweden and be like six months ahead of what's whatever is happening here. Um, but then I mentioned this to to another previous colleague, and the funny thing here is that he got a bit afraid that I might pull ahead of him financially if if I did that. So he kind of pulled me in and said, uh, I've just started talking to uh, a hedge fund startup and, and they want a telecom analyst and an IT analyst. And, and I think you, you should be that IT analyst and, and we could come in as a package. So what do you say? Uh, and he, he explained a little bit how it worked. And I thought that, well, it sounds a bit like the venture, venture capitalist idea, but just um, maybe a, a little more comfortable and, and arranged from the, from the get-go without mm. me having to, to yep. set it all up. Less risky uh, to, to, to start up, yeah. <laughs> um, so they, they had started in October 1999, and this was in February 2000. Uh, just five months after, and uh, well, as fate would have it, I um, I said yes, and uh, and thus I began at uh, this uh, hedge fund uh, Futurist that would later become uh, the European hedge fund of the decade. Right, I'd really like to get into some of the other things that you discussed, but we'll um, we'll move into them. Things like sleep you mentioned earlier on, and uh, really just the the way that you think. One of the things that I've, I've I really enjoyed about your work is that you tend to speak a lot about essentially how you think and the other inputs in your life that are ultimately, I think, come through in in a, in a better understanding of yourself and a better understanding of the world, and and really just would you know I can see how you came a an exceptional investor by you know having some of these mental models almost, which are unusual. When I kind of think about people taking an action of buying a stock or a bond or a, whatever it may be, you, you have this kind of decision process. Everything starts with the thought. It starts with your own thinking around, say it's a, it's a commodity, and there's a whole lot of biases that come into that. And what I think um, is, is quite prevalent is in society is that People will they will look at the commodity and they'll look at uh, opinions like you mentioned that you don't spend a lot of time on social media and things like that, and that's really just it's 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 this massive deluge of, deluge of opinions and people often let that sort of affect them and sway them one way or the other without spending some time on trying to understand independently what that commodity is or, or what the inputs are because ultimately you know the first the first channel towards an action is thought. And it's only once we have a thought that we can then express that in some sort of action. And so I kind of wanted to cover how how you go about thinking about the world yourself and asset price. You know, if we think about it in the financial world, how you think about asset prices, that sort of uh, macro world that we live in. And, and, you know, you're sitting there in Sweden, which is at the heart of um, some massive changes taking place now within Europe, you're part of the EU, and there's, there's these significant shifts taking place. I think it's a, it's a fascinating time for anyone. I, mean, I think a friend of mine 
mentioned this the other day, that there's probably going to be more in about 10 years past and the 10 years to come than at any other point in the last sort of 100 years around you know ec- economics and finance. Uh, that may or may not be true. We'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I wonder if you could just spend a little bit of time on delving into how you go, you know, when you're working at Futurus, what your, what your thinking pattern was and how you managed to navigate the markets, which you did exceptionally well. I'm really interested in not necessarily the moves, uh, positions that you took, um, but anybody can research those, but in, in the thinking that went, went into that. It's very tempting to, um, uh, to just join the crowd and, and do whatever they do. So therefore it's, it's, um, um, well, you're, you're drawn to reading and listening to, to other people's opinions and, and advice. And, and that's really what you, what you shouldn't do. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed when, when you're having breakfast, uh, uh, or well, eating anything, and if you have anything with text on it ahead of you, you read it. I, mean, I can read the the milk carton like twenty times if I if I have one mm-hmm. for me. It's it's like impossible not to take in information, and I think you know, the same thing happens when whenever anybody is uh, like spouting an, an opinion about the gold price or the stock market. You you, you get interested and you think that there might be something valuable in that information. And, and I also think you have like an, an innate drive to, to join the crowd, to just know where, where the crowd is and then just be one of all of that warm fuzziness. Um, and, but what, what you really should do instead is just, well, firstly, try to form an opinion independently even if you think that you have way too little information at least just think it through like i mean if if you if you don't think that you have enough information about gold you could still just give yourself like 30 minutes or an hour and, and jot down any variable or any piece of information you, th- you think that you have that you possess that that could um form the basis of, of, um, of a buy or sell, uh, um, conclusion for, for, for gold so that you at least have, uh, at least know where you are before you start mm-hmm. being affected by everybody else around you. Um, and then you should seek out at least as many, um, opposite opinions as, as, uh, supportive, uh, opinions. I love um, that. I, that I, um, everyone listening, I think that is just that ability to critically look at something that you hold as an, an, as a bias. It saved my butt so many times, and when I've not done it, it's slaughtered me so many times. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. should feel uncomfortable. It should should really feel bad to the to the core because you you have. You have an opinion. You think this is the way the world works. I'm, right. I'm going to buy gold. But then you try to find gold bears and 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 just hear them out and see what mm-hmm. they're saying. Uh, and I I have a um, kind of a, a daily exercise that you could use to to become more uh, to to make this uh, this action more more automatic. Um, w- whenever I I walk my dog or or 
I'm out just walking in general or doing whatever I'm doing. Um, at more or less every corner or every place where there is a decision to make, I I try to feel which one is the uh, the most uncomfortable. Um, so so rather than just taking the exact same routes home from from the groceries, I I take in every every street corner I take the one that that just feels wrong. Mm-hmm. And and that's uh, well f- for one thing I do it because it's it's good for your brain. It keeps you yep. younger, healthier. It gives you more BDNF. It may, the plasticity stays high. You, you, you simply become more more intelligent. You push off Alzheimer's. All those things. When it's, it's it's just good for you to to do unexpected things all the time. But I also think it, it primes you for for searching for that uncomfortable information when, when looking at investments it just becomes uh, a part of you to to behave that way it's um, interesting I, that you know you you just mentioned that coming back from the supermarket and things like that um when i i guess when i think about how to sort of um explain that in terms of human psychology and and how we adapt to things human beings are we like to we like to have certainty so you coming home from the supermarket taking uh the route that you took the previous day provides certainty because you've done it before right mm, yeah and so that level of certainty if you think about it and you say okay i'm going to do that every day and i'm going to always walk that path you now have this this linear path of assumptions every day you're going to walk that path and you're going to you you're going to expect certain things which have always been there and if you think about you know we started off this discussion around pe ratios there is this human nature to to enjoy and desire consistency and so we tend to extrapolate things in a linear function right yes and 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 if you look at the natural world and certainly the stock market it's a dynamic you know we live in a dynamic world and yet most of our assumptions are are based on a linear um, pattern which you know it doesn't make any sense so that exercise to to train yourself to actually think in a dynamic fashion as opposed to a linear fashion it's not something that i think um, people spend a lot of time even thinking about let alone trying to you know design ways to actually execute that in their life yeah and i think it's since we want to be one with the crowd and we want to be part of the discussion and the well the, the general discourse it it's it's much easier to to do that if you if you just talk about pe ratios for example I mean, if you take the the simplest common denominator in terms of valuations and, and the stock market conversations then you will be able to to talk to anybody and, and that just it feels good but it mm-hmm. but it's of course wrong to do that and um, if you can train yourself to do quite the opposite at all times then not only will you benefit from better information and from thinking more dynamically you will also more or less automatically exclude yourself from the crowd you won't even fit in there anymore so you you, you can't you can hardly discuss anything with the crowd anymore one because it just feels boring and, and they well you realize that they they are at the complete wrong level and 
and, and, uh, and then you presumably you're not going to get that social feedback which most people desire again because you're so we tend to be social creatures and so it's like being in a in a uh, <laughs> if we sat down in a group uh, a room full of full of analysts or or hedge fund managers or economists and and you you have not necessarily even a contrarian view but just have a completely different way of looking at things you know people will will naturally sort of go oh that guy's a weirdo um yeah. and so being able to be uncomfortable is yeah and is, and, and that that's a that's a really good thing so you um if, if you can train yourself to uh, almost enjoy being uncomfortable which is uh, that, that's a kind of a level where i'm at because when i'm trying to decide which is the most uncomfortable uh, route home uh it's it's become it's become difficult because i'm drawn towards the unfamiliar but that gives me joy so mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of you see I've I've added uh, just one more layer on it. So so uh, it's it's now I almost have to take the most joyous route route home because that's the the unfamiliar <laughs> one. So that's where it's weird. <laughs> have to start walking backwards. Right, but but you're you're, you're tending you know to cover um, I guess a number of spectrums of of just ways home. Um, yeah, and what you're talking about, Michael, is. You know, I'm um, not sure if you've read of um, many of Soros's books, but he speaks about this um, this joy that he finds when he finds something wrong, not when he finds it right, when he you know, when he's um, validated in a particular um, position he's taken um, or assumptions that he's made, but he finds joy in finding where he's wrong because he he knows and he understands that. He's always wrong at some level, at some point within his his framework of thinking, and so when he can find out what that error is or what that failure is, he's he knows he's better off for it, and that's that tends to be the opposite of of what what many people will do is they'll they'll come to a, a, a an assumption or a, or a decision around, for example, gold, and then they will look for a validation for that, and so they'll seek mm. out. Other people who, who think similarly, and and the more people who think similarly, the the more comfortable they will feel. Which, yeah, sure. which, if you think about pricing of a market, that's 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 where asymmetry doesn't lie. In that, when you have mm. more people thinking one way, and and you're on that same boat on that same side of that boat, then even if you're right, it's difficult for you to be necessarily profitable. Uh, I am. Um, uh, I'm kind of. I'm quite envious of his position of of actually feeling joy when finding out that uh, that he's wrong, or, or finding exactly where and how he is wrong. Uh, I'm. I'm still. Um, uh, it still hurts for me when I when I find where where my ideas are wrong and I have to um, kind of backtrack. Um, but but at least I'm I'm looking for for my wrongs. Um, I remember as a sell-side analyst, and I think this goes for most sell-side analysts, you, you take a position and um, uh, make a recommendation and, and you write your research report and then you start looking for all the, the, the ways and the things and the data series that can uh, support your, your thesis. Mm-hmm. And whenever you find a supportive uh, data series, you just 
get really, really happy and, and uh, make sure you, uh, you can present that in the, in the most positive way possible. Uh, so you're, you're com- constantly priming yourself for, for looking for supportive information and then, then um, distorting it even, even more positively and presenting it to, to clients and your colleagues and, and, and bosses and, and to yourself. <laughs> um, and then so, you, you so yeah. Mikhail, you're talking about something that you've dealt with, I've dealt with, um, uh, and, and, you know, anybody that's investing in the market is dealing with, but just on an aggregate scale in that you have market zeitgeist in whichever fashion, whether it's bullish tech, whether it's bullish sovereign debt, bearish corporate debt, whatever it happens to be, the more uh, analysts think that way and the you'll have this and, I, and, I've, and I've actually I've previously tried to to um, to, uh, to to put this through a data sheet, but um, number of analysts that are that are positive on a on a particular sector, and then you look at let's say you've got for example five analysts, and they all put out a bullish uh, report on tech stocks as an example, and what I've what you'll find is that you'll have another ten analysts who will use the data sets and the information from the previous five analysts to back up and validate their own analysis. So you have this almost like a compounding effect of what at the base level is maybe only you know five different pieces of analytical work. But the more people that sort of get onto that particular train, they'll find a little data set that's maybe a little bit, it hasn't been used, and they'll, they'll layer it on top of all these other um, previously supportive um, analytical points. And, and it kind of tends to build and build and build. And then, you know, that's just capital that starts shifting in in that direction, and so, you know, I've got friends that are um, uh, swing traders, for example, and 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 they'll they'll look at these kind of capital shifts, and and I can understand that 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 can make money, and it makes sense. What is interesting is is you can almost trade market psychology rather than any fundamentals whether the analysts are right or wrong is, is to a certain extent at some level uh, somewhat I- irrelevant in the in the short term in the long term you know it, it matters because a business is either overvalued or undervalued um, and there is you know a regression to the mean but that's I find that ability to um, uh, look at data sets um, and, and and challenge them as opposed to layering them on top of each other, it's very difficult. It's very difficult for that to exist in the sell side community. If if you had a sell side firm, how would you how would you run it? Um, well, I would tell my analysts to uh, to, to to never um, stick their neck out to uh, to never have a, um, a a too strong an opinion and and then not to deviate too much from uh, from the mean, but rather. Um, just keep a, a slightly bullish position, slightly bullish to bullish position on, on all the recommendations. Well, as long as that's legal and you don't have to have a certain amount of, of neutrals or ourselves as well. Um, and uh, as soon as they are wrong uh, and, and the stock price uh, tanks, they just have to, to move their target price down to, close to, to, to new market price just to make sure that the 
retrospective graphs of their recommendations and the, the stock market price seems to follow each other pretty closely so that the eye can be, be fooled into thinking that you are um, uh, concurrent or, or even ahead of, of the stock price movement. Uh, this is actually what, what sell-side firm, the, 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 the successful sell-side firms are doing. Uh, it's um, very dishonest, but that's the way to make money on the, on the sell-side. Uh, it doesn't pay to be fundamentally correct, but uh, wrong on timing. Um, and it, it doesn't pay to to stick your neck out because it hurts so much more reputation-wise when you're wrong than than you gain from from being very right at, at certain times. Yeah. Um, so it's better to just um, well uh, at, on the sell side, it really pays to just be one of the crowd and, and never to uh, um, have a contrarian opinion or, or uh, but then trying to a, do the right thing. I mean, isn't this a problem that we have in fund managers? Um, you know, again, I've got many friends in that space. And the wonderful thing about managing your own money is that you're not pressured on time. You can, you can, um, you can have the flexibility to let things play out. Whereas if you're a fund manager, every quarter matters because you need to be posting results. And if your results are not what, you know, uh, you know, if, if you're not beating the index or if you're not beating your peers, you're, you know, there's this, um, this fear of redemptions. And so the market, you know, you, it tends to be shorter term thinking. And there's a need, if you're going to be managing money, to be somewhat correlated with what everybody else is doing because as you correctly mentioned being right fundamentally doesn't matter if you're wrong on pricing or timing um, in the shorter term because the clients the your your lps are typically the other guys sitting watching twitter feeds and um, bloomberg and cnbc and that information flow is is something that affects their decision making which ultimately affects the capital that you have under management. Was that something that you ever felt as a pressure? I was uh, still pretty naive, uh, at least um, the, the first five or 10 years at Futuris. And, and I actually think that uh, even my, um, uh, my older uh, partners and founders were too, or, or, or maybe they were consciously um, ignoring uh, Whatever was going on in, in in the rest of the the hedge fund community, but we uh, we actually stuck to fundamentals and to our own values and our own thinking, and we we weren't at all in, involved in any kind of club investing. We actually even got critique from our clients when, when they asked us. Uh, which other funds we were talking to, and we said none. We we don't have any connections or, or talk talk to anybody. Uh, we, we got critiqued for for that, um, and for me, it was just completely natural to just bend down my head and and do the calculations and visit the companies and find the information and and just uh, take the fundamental position. I, I didn't even consider. Uh, trends stock market trends or, or momentum uh, I, I that would have been s just to me complete 
bunk and, and witchcraft. And, and I, even if somebody had, had told me that I should pay attention to trends, I, I, I would have said that they, they can't maintain themselves for well, very long anyway. So I'd, I'd rather just invest the way fundamentals tell me to. Um, and uh, I, I and the rest of the firm probably didn't understand uh, the, the marketing implications of this either. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that we didn't get too much money to, um, uh, to manage either in, during the first, uh, first years since we, we didn't fit in anywhere. Uh, people tried to, to find somewhere in the investment matrix to, to put us, well, are you a long fund or a short fund or, or market neutral or what are you? Um, and, and, the, and the in the end, we were well, well. No, yeah, we're <laughs> we're black box, and and we have style drift, and we we do whatever we think is is the, the best course of action for the time being, uh, and that didn't really fit in anywhere until we started getting prices for uh, for performance. But that was for more for for long term performance than than single years. So and um, even that, the capital that flows into money managers that are actually. Uh, perform well on I think uh, this is this is just my my gut feeling from uh, friends and family and and the likes but there's more capital that gets allocated towards heavily strongly marketed um, funds than there is towards those that necessarily produce long-term good results yeah once we actually started trying to do some marketing in, the, in, in 2005 and 2006 um, I, I went on a, on a, on a small tour and, and visited like 50 or a hundred or 150 or, or, or so, uh, fund managers in, in Switzerland and, and the UK, uh, and France mainly, um, and got exactly zero money from, from those tours. Um, I, I realized exactly that, that our performance and, and track record didn't matter just one yota. Uh, it was all about uh, our position within in this, this matrix of, uh, of investment styles. And I also realized that a newly started fund, a fund, fund completely void of track record, if they just had a good, good uh, presentation pack, um, they, they would get more money than we had amassed during our, our lifetime uh, just from, from positioning themselves as, as a, a particular type of fund and, and promising a certain type of returns, even though they didn't have any track record to back it up. So why do you think that was? I think it's just very easy for, uh, for the fund manager, the, the one who decides whether to invest in you or not, to... Um, to, to take your numbers and your presentation and show it to, to your bosses or to your clients and say, look, here is a, a fund that says that they are aiming for 20% returns on average and a maximum drawdown of 5%. They have an automatic stop loss procedure at 5% and, and so on and so on. Uh, and then also maybe say something about the, the, the CVs of, of the people starting the fund. Mm -hmm. Um, which often sounds impressive, um, even though they never have managed money for real. Right. Do you think that, and this is a hypothesis, so shoot holes in it, we fear pain or loss more than we do enjoy 
success. There's been many studies that have been conducted that sort of um, validate that. If I'm a fund manager and I have to answer to my LPs and I lose money, my LPs will come to me and say, why did you lose money? And if I can point and say, oh, I lost money with, you know, Mikhail Siding over here. And they go, how did you do that? Why, why did you invest in him? And I say, well, here's all of the points that, you know, he had maximum stop loss of 5%. And, uh, you know, he showed a very clear, concise method of how he was going to be attempting to achieve 20%. And, you know, I can, I can back up and say why it is that, that things went wrong. If I if I have to turn around and say, well, I lost money with Mikhail over here, and my LP say, well, you know, what is his what's his strategy? And I turn around and say, well, he doesn't really have a strategy. He's it's a little bit like you've got to get in the back seat of the car, and he's going to drive down the road, but he might drive on the wrong side of the road sometimes. And occasionally, if he thinks it's the right idea, he might drive on the footpath too. It's just you know, it's it's becomes very difficult for somebody to. Uh, to validate uh, when things go wrong, and so you know, uh, humans tend to shy away from the potential rewards, and 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 they look for that ability to to mitigate losses. And yeah, I agree completely. I agree completely with with the, the implications of this, and and I think it's definitely the the way that most clients thought, and in particular in. Uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world, like UK and, and the US, uh, because we we never got any money from from those places at all. But in, in the end, we did get money from from Switzerland uh, several years later, because in the end, uh, uh, large family offices in Switzerland um, they made their own decisions, and they they were able to to make to take those decisions. Uh, to invest in a, in a black box like Futuris, um, not, not despite us being a black box, but even maybe because we were a black box, because that would be uh, uncorrelated with everything else. Right. And presumably you'd, had a, you'd built a track record by the time that those family offices invested. Yeah. So when, when we actually won the best European hedge fund of the year in 2008, and then uh, a year later uh, won the uh, European Hedge Fund of the Decade Award, then, then uh, it became very easy for them to well, talk to whatever clients they had and, and say that this is actually the best fund. Even if it's, a, it's a black box fund, but look at the track record. Yeah. They were the best fund of the year and the best fund of the decade. This, they, they can, obviously, they can... They can perform, and not only perform, but perform in the worst markets conceivable. So, um, coming back to those worst markets, um, because you, you know, you, <laughs> I mean, there's always there always seems to be a um, a crisis of some nature taking place somewhere on the planet, and um, you you kind of started cutting your teeth at the depths of the crisis, uh, financial crisis in Sweden, even though you didn't really know that it was taking place. But as you were managing capital, you went through the, the GFC. You kind of um, you had the the last effects, I guess, of the um, of the tech boom and bust. Managing the capital and, and taking the positions that that you took, and I you know, strongly suggest anybody listening to this should um, go and download your um, your ebook that you've written, uh, which covers some of these topics to get a better understanding about what it is that you did during those timeframes. 
what was your work life like with um, with your partners? Because your mindset is clearly one that's um, at odds with people people managing money. Did you have partners that were of a similar mindset to yourself, um, or how did you know what was the thinking like amongst your uh, the, the, you know the fund managers that you were working with? We were quite different, all of us. Uh, but the one thing that uh, united us was uh, pragmatism. We, we were all very pragmatic and in some ways, at least in time, we, we were holistic and, and interested in, in how everything was, was tied together. Um, but so we can start with the, the, the absolute basis for our investments was uh, being fundamental. So we, we researched the actual driving forces and business ideas behind the companies we wanted to invest in. Uh, so the important thing for us was to see that it's, this, this is a company that it has a reasonable growth and a reasonable valuation. And they will, well, almost like Buffett style companies, uh, things with, with like a, a moat around their 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 business idea and the, and their competitive advantages something that we could see is is will be um well, strong driving forces even a year or two or three out and and well should be uh, for for decades out really but uh, as long as we could see that one year out uh, we will start to see um a, a good or reasonable growth in in earnings and cash flows um, and, and that that will manifest itself in in at least as high a valuation as today, and, and that would mean that you would get that growth in terms of, of the the share price as well. A pre- pretty um, basic idea uh, to start with uh, for, for our investments, but I think what, what differed, uh, what, what set us apart from from other people, I think, was that we weren't just looking at just the numbers but we we met with companies with sub suppliers with analysts talked to anybody we could find and and really tried to penetrate the the business idea in itself what what is it that that they are actually doing with their clients and prospective clients not that they this this company is selling uh, a computer or or a software and and they they are trying to improve uh, the cost economy of of, of that product uh, that wouldn't be interesting the question was more like what need are they fulfilling at their clients and then what um uh, what 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 might that mean in terms of um uh, of market shares going forward do, do they have anything anything special here that that will keep them in business and, and keep growing their business. So, well, it, it's hard to talk about these things just hypothetically and, and generally, but, um, and when, when, um, when researching a, a company, uh, you really have to go beyond the, the, the earnings ratios and the cash flows and, and, uh, and the, the current actual business and, and, and try to get at the actual like driving forces in the company, um, and and as as uh, Warren Buffett typically says, it's more about management than than the the, the current 
um, products and, and, and business idea. And I think in a way that was what we were getting at, even if no one of us w w was a, like a, uh, a Buffett worshiper or, or, or right. we never, we never even mentioned Buffett in, 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 in a way like that. But I, in, in retrospect, I think we almost did the same thing. We just went about it a, a different way. Um, by looking for what so you, might this develop into rather than but you had i guess essentially bottom up was the, the strategy that you know if, if someone's going to label it and categorize it you'd say well you guys were um, bottom up looking at particular companies and sectors when it came to deciding what sectors you would be investing in you start moving more towards that kind of macro view of looking at things was that something that um you did much of at the fund because you know when, when i look at the positions that you took there was clearly some very adept movements that from the outside i look at it and i think you guys had a must have had a very good understanding essentially of uh, that global macro environment to be able to well, yeah to, to this is what um this is what tricked um, our our clients because we depicted ourselves as this bottom up fundamental single stock yeah, investment yeah, firm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but within the firm, we we kept pitching our ideas to each other and trying to find the best ideas. So we didn't have a uh, a set weight for for various industries but rather if, if i pitched banks and software companies and somebody other pitched his engineering companies and then a third person pitched his oil and, and shipping companies then we we found which of these ideas actually had had the best risk reward profiles and and we tilted the portfolio and, and is sometimes heavily so toward the ideas that were the best so therefore we could have more or less only shipping and oil in, in, in the, in the portfolio and, and no banks at all, uh, or even being short banks and, and long oil. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the way the portfolio was tilted between industries was uh, at least partly came from whichever portfolio manager had the best ideas and, and, and could portray them as, as having the best risk reward profile. Uh, but on top of this, we also discussed a lot, a lot of macro, and 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 that, I think that's uh, emerged from the pitching of our respective ideas, because that 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 pitching and the the basis for why a certain company or industry would have better uh, return perspe perspectives th than another. Um, that had to come from somewhere, uh, and and then it became a, uh, th then it turned into a discussion about like various macro prices, like interest rates or or GDP growth rate movements in in various regions and and so on, and 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 um, out of that we all became interested in in uh, reading strategy reports and and, and uh, macroeconomy reports and just keep keep covering those and I, I think that that's also one thing that that set us apart and that's the second pillar of our investment so we started out with this fundamental single stock research but the, the second pillar which became almost just as important was to um, to keep covering various macro 
aspects and and and, and talk about that. So so we were we were all versed in macroeconomy, um, and um, uh, I think most um, most equity funds they don't they don't talk about macroeconomy at all, and most sell side analysts they just disregard disregard that completely and i think a lot of people who theorizes about the market also says that you can't really make any forecasts on macro anyway and well nowadays i i kind of um, adhere to that view as well but but <laughs> i think one thing that actually set us apart was that we took macro into account and we discussed it discussed it heavily and and we we used it together with our bottom-up information to uh, decide how to tilt the portfolio towards one sector on, or the other, or, or even whether to tilt the entire portfolio towards a net short position or, or a net long. That's interesting because when I think about, like a lot of my friends, sort of US-based, and the US has been the leading country since, I guess, Bretton Woods and even before then, and fund managers that are in the United States tend to not necessarily look at at kind of macro which i kind of understand that from the perspective that you've got a country which has got everything that they need self-sufficient in energy they're self-sufficient in food and water and main resources that are required and they're sufficient of a population size as well for for them to function relatively somewhat independently and so the the kind of macro view is can be discounted because you know it's been good for a long time so there's the supposition that we don't have to worry about that which can just you know look up look at you know bottom up which if you kind of think about buffett buffett's you know he's had a few ventures offshore but but for the most part he's he stayed at home and when i think about yourself sitting in in sweden a country which is more affected by your neighbors than uh, than a country like the United States, it certainly makes a little bit more sense that having having an inclination or having a, an understanding about even just you know the rest of Europe and what what might be taking place with trade or things like that would make have a greater impact. So you might start doing an analysis on a particular company and you find that you know they're exporting their software to Germany, and so you know if there's a, a trade barriers with Germany, then that could have an impact on on the company's profits and cash flows. And so you sort of almost immediately start getting dragged into uh, a, a, a more macro kind of environment. Was that something that you found with your analysis that you, you kind of got pulled into that macro view of things? Definitely. Um, actually, every sell-side analyst who covers engineering or pharma or any of those multinational industries uh, that that well even sweden has a, a couple of big companies in uh, they 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 early on start to cover uh us and and, and asian and, and european counterparts and, and competitors so so they they quickly become um interested and knowledgeable in, in uh, global macroeconomics uh, since I started out as a, as a tech analyst and, and the tech companies in Sweden at that time were well there were a couple of, of software companies that actually had international competition but there there were also a lot of like uh, PC builders that that had uh, an advantage in terms of uh, uh, of cost and distribution that made them 
less susceptible to, to international competition. It sounds weird saying that now, but that, that was at least my, my truth back then. And also a lot of, of local uh, IT services consulting firms that, that were definitely uh, local and, and had no, no real competition from, from the big uh, global firms. So I was very late to the game of, uh, of understanding um, uh, global competition, but, but most other people did. So my, my partners at the firm, they, they were already, well, they knew that there was a, a big world outside. Whereas when, when I actually started at Futurist, I, I had two revelations. One was when I was, uh, was talking about valuations and, and, and profits and cash flows and, 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 and various multiples. And, um, uh, the, um, the, the founder and the, the CIO, uh, he said, whose earnings? And, and that just blew my mind. It was like, what are you, are you questioning the, 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 the medium earnings numbers that, that are out there? Uh, because I said something about PE valuation or, or price cash flow valuation. And he said, just whose earnings and, and right after that i realized that i was supposed to to completely independently without anchoring without listening to anybody else uh, just make up my own opinion where where i really thought bottom up that that earnings will would uh, would end up or could end up um but it's it, to anybody listening to this they must must think that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real retard i mean that was like five years into my career and, and I still <laughs> couldn't really understand that, that, uh, what you, was that, that you could for? question the, the forecasts of, of, of earnings numbers. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the other thing was what about, and well, let's say I was looking at a, a software company within the ERP industry, a Swedish software company. And, and he was like, what about SAP? And, uh, an international competitor, a German company, the number one in the industry, and yep. and, uh, well, uh, and 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 I was like, what am I supposed to to look at those companies as well? I don't know anything about them. Um, fortunately, I I had looked into these companies, but never really considered them uh, because they they actually didn't they didn't matter to my to my forecasts or to my recommendations at at that time, but. But quite soon after just those two simple comments, then I, I, I broadened and I broadened quickly and, and just looked at everything everywhere and, and paid much less attention to, um, to my, to the companies that I had started out looking at in, um, in Sweden. Um, so, uh, it, this was, uh, well, this was very early on at Futurius, like in the 2000, 2001 period. Uh, and, uh, but I didn't, it didn't, it didn't take long for me to, um, uh, uh, to adapt to this new perspective, but it did appear to me very late. Uh, but after that, it became just very natural. And, and I understood that everybody else had done this from the start because that was the natural thing to do from, um, uh, from the vantage point of, of Sweden. I just hadn't realized it before then. I don't think it's necessarily um, tied only to Sweden. That's, that's probably a fairly standard um, methodology. So, um, Which makes it even more embarrassing which, for me to, <laughs> to, to not realize that until then. But, but inherent in that 
Mikhail, is I think the ability that you had unknowingly at the time, I guess, was just this, you could look at it and say, oh, you were naive or, or even myopic. But there's probably a certain amount of value that was placed there whereby you weren't influenced by noise. When I think about how much information flow there is and how much noise there is around the uh, everything that goes on in the marketplace, it's a challenge for me and I know it's a challenge for many investors and fund managers and family offices and you name it, to try and eliminate the noise from what actually matters. You know, that's it's a constant process I'm, I'm trying to get better at. And it sounds like what you had there was this automatic elimination of both the noise and probably things that you shouldn't you should have been paying attention to but you you kind of came at it from an angle which is very different to the majority of people who the majority of people would come at it from this angle of having this massive data flows and then trying to ward off all of the incoming and try and sift through it and figure out what actually matters and what needs to be paid attention to and you you kind of skirted all of that automatically yeah, I, I can't explain it. Uh, and apparently I, I did miss the things that um, that normal people would think were uh, really important um, and that I maybe at least should have um, had use for in, in a normal conversation, um, not least with clients. Um, but I, I think that I, I was just so pressed for time and uh, also slept too little that i i just had to focus on on whatever mattered it's it's almost like uh, you probably heard about the experiment where you put uh, like electrodes on on a plant and the plant gets to decide what to buy and sell in the stock market and it gets water and sunlight depending on if it's successful or not and it it, it works pretty well well that is until it dies but, but uh, otherwise it it it, it learns a system for trading on the stock market typically um, since well it picks up on, on patterns that that well uh, more or less momentum trading i guess and yeah. and, and it and it works uh, it works for a long time it's like picking pennies in front of a steamroller of course so, so in the end you'll die uh, but i think that's that's kind of what i did in in the beginning i just i was so pressed that i um i just took the signals that worked Right. This is this is all I have time to do, and these are the things that matter to me. And I don't even have time to consider that there is something else out there uh, until I until I did, and and fortunately, I just did it in time. I just had the luck to to join up with with uh, more experienced people and and uh, people with uh, a more uh, social view of the world. You just brought up something that you've mentioned before, and it's um, it's been a strong interest of my own. Artificial intelligence. You were talking about a plant and putting uh, electrodes on a plant, and the plant determining you know there's a you're rewarded if it does well, and you chastise it or you um, take something away if it doesn't do well. Which which we've seen taking place in mathematical and computer driven programs. Much of the trading in large ETFs, for example, and things like that now is predominantly run by you know, black box trading systems. And artificial intelligence um, or even augmented intelligence, you know, a machine that doesn't necessarily learn, but it can aggregate data and it can 
extrapolate that data based on historical trends and so on and so forth and allocate capital accordingly that's you know that's been going on for some time and it's just getting better and better and i've kind of got this feeling that a trader like myself or um, anybody else out there our days are numbered i'm not going to have the you know that we've just had um, alpha go which has beaten the famous world champion or is one of the one of the champions at at the game go which is quite a significant feat because the way that that game works of course is there, there is no possibility to to know all of the outcomes um, whereas with chess there's 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 a set number of outcomes for each and every move and so a computer can aggregate all of those run the tests and figure out what to do whereas with go it's it's you know the, the computer had to learn as it went and then and then adjust a little bit like you were mentioning the plant kind of learning what what works and what doesn't i know you've got quite a lot of thoughts on artificial intelligence and uh, robotics and things like that what does that world in your mind look like one interesting thing about uh, the um, the go win is that um, some knowledgeable people typically say that this happened at least 10 years earlier than predicted another way of putting that is that saying that uh, the machine was at least a thousand times better than than expected because that would be two to the power of 10 right um so th- that puts it into perspective how surprised everybody was at uh, at this uh, of this feat the interesting part behind it is that it's a generic system so that it, it's not specific to the, the game go is what i'm saying it, it can be used no, no. in uh, anything yeah like in a game or, or in cancer treatment or mm-hmm. diagnostics and, and so on. So it's a, it's a very interesting development and it says something about how quickly this area of artificial intelligence and machine learning might move from here. I mean, everybody has always said that th- things are moving too slowly. This, this will never happen. AI is it's just another dream that will never happen. It's like cold fusion. Uh, but it's, uh, well, it, it seems as... Um, it, it it's about to to really kick off and it might kick off in a way that's that's completely unexpected to us but to get back to the question um i've i've gone through a couple of stages uh in the market where i've always thought that um uh, that the game was already over in in, in terms of of um, potential profits in in a certain area so for example when when i when i started as an analyst i actually believed in the efficient market hypothesis so i thought that there is actually nothing you can do here <laughs> yeah very very, very good pre- premise but that, to, to that, start that's, out that's the premise that, that the market sort of has an iq of you know maybe 150 when it, it probably has an iq of 80 yeah yeah uh, anyway I, I i at least i after a while realized that um, no matter what I think about this, that there, there is money to be made in writing research reports. Uh, and I, once I did that, I, I started thinking that, well, my, my analysis and, and my way of looking at, uh, future cash flows actually seems, seems to work. Uh, and it works better than what the market is, is doing. So, um, this uh, efficient market hypothesis probably doesn't work. And then, uh, already back in 1994, uh, I uh, got the assignment to to program some kind of uh, options arbitrage model uh, at the firm. 
And um, um, I thought, well, all the arbitrage must have been already taken away from the market. Of course, there are supercomputers doing this all day long. So there, there is no arbitrage at all left in the markets. Um, something that I, uh, well, had to had to learn and had to realize that uh, no way nobody had had even started doing that in in a system systematic way in 1994 and not even in 2004. It's still then you could just program a, a simple arbitrage computer and and and, uh, and make money at least in, in uh, low volumes. Um, and um, uh, in, in, in back in some sometime in like 1997, 1998, I started thinking that maybe you could just pick up keywords on the internet and determine the general sentiment and, and try to find patterns that could actually tell which way the stock market uh, is probable to move today or, or this week. And, um, uh, but, but thought again that, well, somebody must have done that already. And and uh, and, and uh, not long after, well, uh, uh, a couple of guys broke off from the bank I was working at and, and started a, a, an extremely successful fund doing more or less that. Um, uh, and I think there is still uh, a great deal of opportunity for for machine learning and, and uh, sentiment uh, gauging on the internet and much like that, that plant, a very simple idea really. And if you just happen to find the, uh, the right keywords and the, and the right patterns, um, then it will probably work for a while. Pretty good. Um, the same thing I thought about momentum. I mean, that, that really should, that should be, be probably arbitrary. the first, first one <laughs> that you would think. Yeah, yeah. It should have been, but, but I didn't think about that I, because I thought that momentum was so stupid that it could never be used for anything it's uh, just an extrapolation I, of human behavior yeah yeah <laughs> uh but still there are a lot of firms doing momentum trading mm -hmm. most of the largest algo traders and and, uh, and 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 big hedge funds they are momentum traders yeah. either automatically or or with human in intervention and and right now we're we're at machine learning and and finally i've i've caught up mentally and think that this works uh, uh, if you have enough power, if you, if you use IBM's Watson to, uh, to, um, analyze big data, um, I'm, I'm sure you can make better fundamentally based decisions on, on companies and take into account things like sentiment and momentum, etc. Uh, and, and, and simply you will, you, you can use all the data and make good decisions better decisions than than any of us uh, could ever hope to make right um, i mean it's but, a, but yeah just let me finish just one sorry. one more thing so uh but these things probably won't be patient they uh, unless you program it or unless you interfere but then it kind of disrupts the whole process so what you as a human have left is that you can use simple heuristics instead, use very few variables and use a high degree of patience. And that could be your competitive advantage. That's really interesting because I've been thinking a lot about this. 
And I kind of, the way that I think about it is another topical information that's been in the news some time has been the collection of data, for example, by the NSA, right? And, mm. and spy agencies. And the extent of that is clearly a lot more than people had ever anticipated. And they're, they're collecting everything. And you would think, okay, if they're collecting all of that data, then surely they would be able to stop a number of the terrorist attacks. But that, that doesn't seem to be the case. And I was watching an interview recently um, around that particular topic, and I wasn't. I was interested in aggregate data collection and how they were synthesizing and utilizing that information. Again, kind of meet machine learning, because there's a company that I invested in which, which does a little bit around that, around security. Really quite fascinating. But the problem seems to be that there's so so much data that they're taking in that they have a complete inability to actually understand that data when you look at everything it's very difficult to find one thing or two things and um, i mean i think that may just be a process that needs to be kind of gone through but if you you know go back to what you were discussing with respect to maybe even market momentum and being able to you know have a number of particular keywords that um, that you're pulling in and that um, you're, you're getting data sets that you could then integrate with, you know, maybe MACD or volume indicators, what you know, a number of other indicators as to you know capital shifting one way or the other. I guess there could be money to be made by kind of synthesizing that data and making sense of it. That's not something that computers are, are necessarily doing right now. If that is the case, then I guess the next question is, will fund managers you know, in, in 10, 15 years' time, are we going to be looking at a situation where you're really just synthesizing data that is pouring in and the, 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 the advantage is in being able to position size according to that data and synthesizing it and, and, and kind of understanding it? Um, is that where the, the edge lies? Or is that something else which, again, if you've got AlphaGo type of ability, does that also get eliminated? Um, I, I can see um, like two different uh, routes here, um, and it, depend, it, it depends a little bit on on the time horizon. And uh, let's see if I can remember both both routes before <laughs> before finishing. Um, one is that I uh, I kind of like the idea that you're saying that we will have like AlphaGo computers doing everything, and then feeding the decisions to um, single human managers that will more or less act like like the plant mm -hmm. so you'll you'll get all this you'll get a a general idea from from AlphaGo, uh, and then you will decide whether to to go all in or simply to wait and do nothing so you'll get all the good ideas, and, but but you will use your judgment to say, no, I actually think this is a bubble, so I'll stay out, uh, and that will be the human element, the human decision, and, and a lot of people will will be wrong when they take those decisions and get kicked out, and 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 some will either by luck or by some special talents actually make a difference. So that, that's 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 one way to go about it, um, and that that's probably the most likely intermediate development, I would say. Uh, but it would still take I don't know 
15 years before we have a lot of managers and, and systems set up like that. Probably even longer. Things like, well, changing society takes a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but we will probably move toward that situation and it will be more and more difficult to, to find uh, a portfolio management job because there will be fewer and fewer people doing this. And the, the capital will get more and more concentrated towards the, the AlphaGo decision makers. And the, the other routes, or possibly the second leg of, of, of the same development, is that if these machine learning investment machines, um, if they actually are better at allocating capital, if it's not just about momentum and, and, and guessing and, and uh, jostling for position among themselves, but actually taking the, the best decisions, the most productive decisions, then they should, should do it all. And we should just sit back. Then we're, then we're actually back at the efficient market hypothesis uh, place where the machine learners make sure that we have an efficient market and that index investing is the best just because these machines make sure that the index is the best way to allocate capital because they are allocating the capital that, that mm -hmm. is productive. Uh, so they will find out whether there should be a, a high-speed railway between point A and point B or not and whether to invest in that company. And, and that would be the best for humanity. And in that environment, there is no arbitrage. No, no arbitrage, no point in using humans for, for judgment. Um, um, and nobody would, would, would be on the stock market. This will be like water or electricity, just a utility, uh, making sure that uh, the combined resources of humanity is spent in the most productive manner conceivable i've i've thought about that and if i'm going to throw a rock at that it's that new the changes like if if i kind of think go back five years ago and you kind of if you were to five years ago say what is the world going to look like today there's a lot of things you would have got well there's a lot of things i would have gotten wrong i won't put words in your mouth and if i go back 10 years and i say 10 years ago what would i have thought would have looked the world look, look like in five years time and there's always there's, there's some fairly significant changes. One of the big changes, of course, that we've had is technology. But what other changes out there that you know, has yet to come to the fore? And so if you've got this, this market environment where the com computers are learning and they're learning based on really just this, this aggregated history of all of the inputs that have, that have been fed into them, what they're not being fed is the, is the stuff that hasn't yet happened. And that typically is a creative process, right? It's, it's someone creating something, um, even if it's a piece of art or if it's a, it, it could be anything, but, um, humans have that creative ability. So then the question becomes, can an alpha go be creative? Can it create something that does not yet exist? I can't get my head around the fact that it could. I might be wrong, but if it can't, then, then you've got uh, you know, almost like this dystopian society whereby the computers are are deciding what where our capital gets allocated, where a bridge gets built, where a a tunnel gets made, where a uh, a farm gets f uh, farmed, and so on and so forth. And and there is no 
capital available and there's no ability to create something new. That creative process isn't allowed to flourish because it's not, a, it's not an existing data point. It's a new data point as never exist, existed before. So that's, that's just one of the things that I kind of throw around in my, my little brain sometimes. But I think uh, we, we've been on, a, on this call for a, a really long time. And so um, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm, I'm keeping you from doing other. So I'd love, um, I'd love to carry the conversation on sometime, but I'm going to call it quits there. And thank you very much for, for all your insights and your thoughts. It's been, been wonderful. Yeah, sure. If I can just uh, comment on the on the the final AI idea very very shortly. Absolutely. Uh, is that um, I think that in in the, in this world that we're talking about, every single individual would still have uh, would still control more resources than they do today. So it's always an individual choice whether to invest in some some crazy own invention or idea. Uh, if they want to, uh, they would typically not want to because they can see that the machines are doing a better job. So uh, it would probably stifle some some innovation. But uh, other crazy people would still want to to try to in, to invent things, and, and they would have more resources resources available than, than they do today. So I think um, all the new things would would happen anyway, and probably in a, in a faster way. And uh, and and secondly. Um, I think um, companies like Watson, they are, well, machines like Watson, they are already kind of nudging at the future when they keep up to date with all the oncology research, for example, and coming up with ideas of, of how to, uh, to refine that research further. So they, Watson spout out ideas about what he doesn't know about oncology and then says, hey, there is a here is where we have uh, a gap in the knowledge base, and well, this is where you should put your your efforts into research because I don't know this, and 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 Watson will be the one who knows everything in oncology and also know will also know where the gaps are. So I think that's another reason that that um, inventions will happen faster and in, in a better direction than than uh, uh, than today. Uh, and thirdly, and uh, finally. Uh, I would typically turn around the question and say, are humans creative? Can humans come up with new things? Uh, and if you want to, there are a lot of interesting TED Talks and, and Freakonomics uh, episodes where, that, that go through these things and, and, and come to the conclusion that humans really just mimic and extend uh, slightly uh, on, on old ideas. Uh, and if we make a computer that that mimic the human brain and then make make it twice the size i think that one will be better that's given me something to think about i i swing backwards and forwards um so i'm schizophrenic on it but happily so i enjoy throwing rocks at my own ideas um <laughs> as crazy as they may be that that's that's part of my own creative process so i appreciate that yeah it's been it's been a lot of fun really appreciate your time and um, look forward to chatting again. Yeah, um, then maybe we can just dive straight into um, macro and economy on the markets, uh, if that's what you want. I'd, yeah, look, I'm, I, I'm, there's a million and one things that I could talk about. My wife tells me I, I talk too much, but you know, one of the other things was you've talked a lot about. You know, how to future proof yourself, and and you know, the topics that you discussed there are um, 
you know, they're around AI and they're around a number of these other things. So there's a lot that we can cover, but next time we can pinpoint two or three things and and um, and nail those down. If, yeah. Great. Well, um, I'll let you on with your day. Great. Very um, nice talking to you. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.